heard, I heard a story about uh, a church that had planned an Easter sunrise service, not just a sermon or a, a service, but a sunrise service, and so they had everything planned out and ready to go, and Sunday morning came, and the preacher was nowhere to be found. He'd done something that he never thought he'd do. He overslept, and he missed the entire sunrise service, and so he apologized, and, and of course, the church forgave him, but they didn't stop him from you know, them from giving him a hard time, all in good fun, but, you know, ribbing him a little bit. And so fast forward a year, they have another Easter sunrise service planned, and everything's ready to go. And he's sleeping the night before when all of a sudden he is startled out of his sleep early in the morning by a phone call. And on the other end of the line, the voice said, preacher, it's Easter Sunday. Jesus is risen, and I think you should do the same. Well, I am glad that you have risen today. Jesus is risen. He is risen indeed, and we celebrate that today and and every day as Christians. We celebrate that uh, wonderful reality, but I'm glad that you've chosen to get up this morning and to worship with us on this Resurrection Sunday. Well, we are in the midst of a series called From Death to Life. It's just a two-week series that we're in, and we're looking at, last week was Palm Sunday, and Jesus's journey to the cross. And so last week we spent some time looking at the cross of Jesus and the crucifixion. And this week we're going to, being that today is Easter Sunday, going to spend some time looking at Jesus's resurrection and the empty tomb and all that comes with that. So turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to John chapter 20. We're going to be skipping around a lot. So uh, I love hearing those pages turn, but I know that a lot of you have uh, your, your uh, Bible on your phone. That's great too. And either way, or you can follow up on the screen uh, as well. So we'll be skipping between Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, uh, and uh, kind of getting the whole perspective as best we can. So John chapter 20, starting in verse 1. John writes, Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb. While it was still dark, certainly John's words here speak to the literal darkness that was going on at that time in the morning. The sun hadn't come up yet, and so it's still dark. There's not much light to be had. But I think those words could also speak to another darkness, the darkness of grief and sadness that was in Mary's heart as she makes her way to the tomb that morning. She had just endured the bleakest days of her life because Jesus had died. The same Jesus who had completely changed the course of her life had died. We don't know how long, but for some time she had been demon-possessed. Mary had been demon-possessed and suffered that for much of her life. But then Jesus comes into her life and he changes everything. He heals her. He casts the demons out of her and he gives her a new life and a new meaning and a new purpose. He redeems her. He saves her. But now he's dead. He's been crucified. Nobody else could do for her what Jesus did for her. Nobody else had loved her and cared about her the way Jesus had, and now he's gone, and she's nauseous with grief. And not only that, but what is she to make about his claims to be the long-awaited Messiah? I mean, she believed him when he said that he was the one. He was the one who would redeem Israel and bring salvation, and yet the Messiah isn't supposed to die. That's not how this is supposed to go. And so with all this going on in her heart and her mind early on the first day, of the week, while it was still dark, Mary went to the tomb. Now, Matthew, Luke, and John, or Matthew, sorry, Matthew, Mark, and Luke 
make it clear that Mary was not by herself when she went to the tomb, that there were some other women who accompanied her on their way to Jesus' tomb to anoint his body uh, with spices. The Jews didn't practice embalming like we do today, and so what they would do is they would wash the body, and then they would wrap it in linen, and then they would um, cover it with spices and different perfumes that made it smell good, not to get too gross on you, but to kind of you know, cover up the smell of, of decomposition because that's what happens to a dead body. But because Jesus had died uh, so near the Sabbath and Jews were not supposed to work on the Sabbath, they hadn't had time to finish the process. And so early in the morning, the next day after the Sabbath, these women go to the tomb to complete the process and show their respect for Jesus. Mark chapter 16, verses 2 and 3 tells us that as they were on their way to the tomb, they asked each other, who's going to roll the stone away? Who's going to move this stone that's in the way of the entrance of the tomb? If you remember just a couple of days earlier when the, Jesus was buried, there was this huge stone that was rolled in front of the tomb. Probably took more than a few strong men to move it. And it's placed there to block off people getting in, or obviously anybody in this case getting out, or so they thought. And even more than that, the Jewish authorities had insisted that the stone be secured and sealed and that Roman soldiers be placed at the entrance to make sure nobody got in or out. And nobody messed with the body or tried to take the body. The religious leaders, if you remember, were concerned that the disciples might come and steal the body and then try to claim that Jesus rose from the dead. And so early the next morning, Mary and the other women went to the tomb, wondering how they're going to move this huge stone so they can anoint Jesus' body. But when they got there they saw that the stone had been moved. Now, Matthew gives us a little bit of detail about what happened just moments before these women arrived. He writes in verses 2 through 4 of chapter 28, There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. And the guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. In other words, it is unmistakable that the powers of heaven are at work here and this angel being present at the tomb of Jesus Christ. And so when Mary and the other women arrive, the stone is rolled back, and even more than that, the tomb is empty. There's no one in it, which that's not how things are supposed to work, you know? And they don't know what to make of it. So John chapter 20, verse 2. So she, Mary, came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved. That's John's way, the author of describing and referring to himself. And she said, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've put him. It's interesting to me how differently Mary seemingly reacts than the other women do. As soon as she sees the stone has been rolled away, she discovers that Jesus's body is gone and she draws a hasty conclusion. She makes a grave mistake, if you will. That's one of the dad jokes that you'll get. Um, she makes a, a mistake, a miscalculation in, in, in understanding what's going on. She assumes that the body has been stolen. And so Mon Mary spontaneously leaves to go back to Jerusalem to tell Peter and John and the other disciples and to share the information with them. You know, a lot of people like to be first with the news, right? You don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you, you find something out, you like to be the first with the news? That's all good and well, except oftentimes when you're the first with the news, it's also very easy to be inaccurate with the news, right? And we see that certainly in our culture, in our day and age. And Mary Magdalene, because of that, misses out on some key evidences that would have opened her eyes to the fact that Jesus' body was not taken. 
but that he had risen from the grave. For starters, as we've already talked about, the tomb or the, the stone had been rolled away. The stone was no longer there, at least blocking the entrance. Now, granted, Mary certainly saw that the stone had been rolled away, but she didn't wait long enough to examine it and to think about who had rolled the stone away. I mean, the soldiers aren't going to roll it away. They're there to make sure it's not rolled away. The disciples aren't going to roll it away, for starters, because they're still mourning behind closed doors the death of their teacher and their Lord and their, hopefully, or what they thought was to be their Messiah. But even more than that, they were behind closed doors because they're afraid of meeting the same fate that Jesus did, of being persecuted and ultimately killed. The enemies of Jesus aren't going to move it. They want it to remain there. And even if they'd taken Jesus' body, all they had to do was produce the body and say, Ah, I gotcha. Just kidding, he didn't really rise from the dead. Here's the body. And so who moved the stone? Well, the only logical conclusion is that God did. An angel of God moved it just as the Bible says. By the way, I want to point something out because sometimes we think the timeline in this is that the angel moved the stone so that Jesus could come out like the angel had some kind of magic key. Jesus is like knocking on the stone door and all of a sudden, okay, let me out. Jesus walked out of the tomb before the angel opened the stone, just to make sure we, we, we are clear on that. The stone being moved was simply a testimony that Jesus had already walked out of the tomb. Because if death can't hold Jesus, no stone, how big or heavy, is going to be able to hold him in a tomb. So I just want to make sure that was clear, just in case you maybe got the, uh, the, the details a little bit off. Jesus didn't need the angel to move the stone. He was fine walking through the stone. I don't know how it worked, but I know he didn't need the, the stone to be moved for him to walk out of that tomb. So the stone being rolled away, that's one evidence that Mary missed. Here's the second one. She missed the evidence of the appearance and the testimony of the angels. In Luke chapter 24, 24, verses 4 through 6, it tells us, while they were wondering about this, so the other women are wondering about this. At this point, Mary's already ran back to uh, Peter and John to say, hey, I, I don't know where Jesus is. It looks like they've taken him, taken him. And the other women are still at the tomb trying to figure out what in the world has happened. And suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. And in their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said, one translation says. Now, if Mary had seen those angels and heard the testimony that they gave, she would have had no other conclusion but that Jesus' body was not stolen, but that rather he had risen from the dead, just as the angels told them. Here's the third bit of evidence that Mary missed out on the resurrection that day, and that was the reminder of fulfilled prophecy. The angel said to the women in Luke chapter 24 verses 6 and 7, remember how he told you while he was with you in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners. They would be crucified and on the third day be raised again. And verse 8 says that when they heard that, they remembered his words. In the chaos and the confusion of the past week, they had forgotten this is exactly what Jesus said was going to happen. And then there's another bit of powerful evidence that I think it's easy to skip over, and that's the presence of the grave clothes. I mean, just think about it. If someone's going to take a body, why would they take the time to then take the grave clothes off? Why wouldn't you just take the body and figure it out where you're going? It doesn't make any sense for the grave clothes to be there if someone has stolen the body. They, they wouldn't just leave it 
there. And so even before they saw Jesus in person, these other women had sufficient evidence to conclude that Jesus's body had not been stolen, but that he had raised from, been raised from the dead. But Mary Magdalene misses out on all of that. She races back to Jerusalem and says to Peter and John, they've taken the body of the Lord. We don't know what they've done with it. And so John chapter 20, verse 3, Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Or the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. By the way, I always love this verse. This is such a guy thing to say, what John says here. Uh, Yeah, we were both running, and uh, I just want to let you know I got there first. I'm faster than Peter. Uh, I don't know if you catch that or not. I I love this this little interchange. Uh, So verse 5, he bent over, and he looked in at the strips of linen, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him, again, a not-so-subtle reminder of who got there first, and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus, again, those grave clothes. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. And finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, just in case you forgot, also went inside. He saw and believed. And yet, even seeing and believing, verse 9 says, they still couldn't fully wrap their minds around the fact that Jesus actually was raised from the dead. And so eventually they go back to where they were staying, trying to make sense of all of this. In the meantime, Mary Magdalene comes back to the tomb. And this time, John and Peter are gone. All the women seem to be gone. The guards are gone. And now she's all by herself. John chapter 20, verse 11. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. And as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. And they asked her, woman, why are you crying? Same thing that she said before. They've taken my Lord away. And I don't know where they've put him. And at this, listen to this. This is where, this is, this is good stuff. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. Now, why does she not realize that it's Jesus? Some say, well, maybe the sun was in her eyes, right? It's just coming up. It had been dark. It's just coming up. You ever looked right in the sun? The sun's coming up. Maybe Jesus was, you know, his back was toward the east and she's looking at and she can't see. Maybe she's just been crying and so her eyes are puffy and she can't see clearly. I, I don't know if that's the reason. I do think it's interesting, though, that there are other encounters that we read about in Scripture where the people that Jesus appears to after his resurrection, they see him, but they don't really recognize that it's him. Like in Luke chapter 24, when two of Jesus' followers are walking along the road and they're headed to a town called Emmaus just up the road and Jesus comes up and walks with them and talks with them. They kind of talk about Scripture. They talk about the day's events or the last several days' events and how that relates to Scripture. And they think they're going to teach Jesus and in the end he ends up teaching them. And they don't know it's Jesus the whole time until they get to where they're going. They invite him to stay with them. They go in and they break bread together. And Luke says that it was then that their eyes were opened and they recognized him. There's another story in John chapter 21 where some of the disciples are out fishing. So this is after Jesus has been crucified. They don't know what to make. They haven't quite seen him yet. And and so they're going back to their day jobs, their old jobs. They're out fishing. And 
Jesus is on the shore. He appears on the shore, but they don't seem to immediately recognize him. And verse 12 says that Jesus invites them to come have breakfast with him. And then it says, it's an interesting way it's put, but none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. To which I'm like, well, why would you have to ask, who are you? if you knew it was the Lord. It's just an interesting dynamic. So point being, there are times when there's just something different about Jesus's resurrected body. It reminds me of the story about a guy who went to his 50th class reunion and he hadn't seen some of his friends in quite some time and they hadn't seen him in quite some time. And he had a great time catching up and hanging out. But at the end of the evening, they left. And as his wife, he and his wife were leaving, he said to her, you know, some of my friends have aged so much that they don't even recognize me. Some of you will get that in a minute. But it's like the opposite with Jesus. The last time they saw him, think about it, he's, he's being crucified. He's, he's being beaten. He's being hung on a cross, nails driven through his hands and his feet. His body is beaten and, and battered and, and scarred. And then he's hung on that cross and he's laid in that tomb his body is lifeless, and now he's raised from the dead. What, what are we to make of this? Now he has a new body, a resurrected body, a glorified body, and there's just something different about him, and they don't immediately recognize him, and apparently Mary doesn't either. And so John chapter 20, verse 15, Jesus asked her, woman, why are you crying? Seems like a silly question in the moment, right? Why are you crying? Who is it that you are looking for? And here's where it gets even more interesting. Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him, and I will get him. I find it so interesting that she thought he was the gardener. Of all the people that she might or could have assumed him or confused him for, even a passerby, right? She confuses him for the gardener. We'll come back to that. Hold on to that. Verse 16, I, I love this part. So context, right? She assumes he's the gardener, doesn't recognize him. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. This is one of those times in scripture where the written word just can't do the moment, justice. Maybe we need some emojis here. I don't know. I mean, you think about it. One minute, she thinks he's the gardener. And the next minute, he's calling her out by name. And as soon as she hears that name, it's like she recognizes, she knows that voice. She knows the way he said, her name. One minute her eyes are filled with tears, the next minute those eyes are as big as saucers as she turns and sees her risen Lord and Savior, mouth just agape, not even words to say except for Rabboni. Tears of joy are replaced with, or tears of sadness are replaced with tears of joy that just stream down her face and she just says that word Rabboni. It's you, my Savior, my Lord. Is it, is it really you? You're alive, Rabboni. And she grabs a hold of him. How can you not? I mean, how could you not in that moment? But verse 17 is, is also interesting. Jesus says, don't hold on to me, 
Mary. For I have not yet ascended to my Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I am descending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Understandably, Mary does not want to let go. I mean, she'd let go before and he died. I mean, this has been the darkest few nights of her life, and now it's the brightest, most joyous moment of her life, and she just wants to hold on. You ever had those moments? The birth of a child? No, you haven't. You're not old enough yet. Who said that? Which one of you said that? Marking it down. Jeb, yeah, you would say that, wouldn't you? For the rest of us, you ever had those moments? The birth of a child? Your, your wedding day? Maybe one of the sermons I preach where you just want to stay in that moment as long as you can. You know what I mean, though. You just want to stay in that moment. You don't want that moment to end. But Jesus says, no, don't hold on to me. You can't stay in this moment. But I do want you to take this moment with you. Because there's still a message to proclaim. There's still others who need to hear the message of hope that I am risen from the dead. And really, that's at the heart of the Easter story because the Easter story is a story of hope. It was the resurrection of her Lord and her Savior that renewed and restored Mary's hope. And the story and message of the resurrection is that that same power is available to you and me to restore and renew our hope. Even in those dark times and even in those deep valleys, Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 1, he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. Paul says, I pray that just like Mary on that first Easter morning, that your eyes will be opened to see the power and the hope that Jesus Christ brings. And in fact, it's actually through Mary that God brings the first tidings of that hope and power. She is the very first one to see the resurrected Lord. In a time where women were often overlooked to be seen, or yeah, maybe to be seen, but definitely not heard. The resurrected Jesus commissions Mary to become an apostle, if you will, to the apostles. He tells her to go and to tell others what she has seen, and it's her voice that is the first human voice in history, to proclaim history's most profound truth. I have seen the Lord. I have seen the Lord. I love this story. I love this story. This incredible, simple, and touching appearance of the resurrected Jesus to Mary is just filled with so many bits of glory-filled wonder. Confusion becomes conviction. Horror transforms into hope. Weeping is replaced by witness. Mary Magdalene, once terrorized by seven demons, by Satan himself, is saved once again by Jesus. And her intended acts of faithful kindness to his battered and lifeless body become the turning point in human destiny. And for us, The journey of this one woman reveals such a marvelous truth that I think every one of us so 
desperately needs to hear. You are known. You are noticed. Your tears are seen. You are valuable to God. You have a mission, no matter who you are, no matter what your past is, no matter what brokenness that you've had to endure or suffer, no matter what loss you've had to go through, the resurrected Jesus longs to enter your life and my life and give you comfort and grace to give you a new life, new meaning, a new purpose. And if you ever doubt that's true, just open your pages to the story of Mary Magdalene and the empty tomb. One last thing. I said we'd come back to Jesus being confused for the gardener. The funny thing is, Jesus doesn't just look like the gardener. He actually is the gardener. He's the true gardener. You know, the very first man, first Adam, was put in the garden to tend it, take care of it. He screwed that up. We've screwed it up ever since. But Jesus, the second Adam, as he's called, is the true gardener who has come to make it all right and straighten it all out. And remember, Jesus was there in the beginning at creation. Just in case, Jesus didn't show up in the New Testament. Jesus was with God. He is God. He was there at creation when everything was spoken into existence. He created the first garden where everything was new and no one knew sin. And the very first thing he does after he's raised from the dead is show up as a gardener again at a new beginning. Beginning of a new week. A new life with something fresh and full of hope to share with us. Share with people like us who know sin and failure and darkness who know valleys, people like a recovering demon-controlled woman, people like a greedy tax collector, people like a disciple who would deny even knowing him, people like you and me. You know, the power of the Easter story isn't simply that Jesus is risen. The power of the Easter story is that because he is risen, everything is new and fresh and full of hope. And who doesn't want that? Who of us doesn't want something new and fresh and full of hope in our lives? And if you want something to grow, you know what you need? A gardener. You need someone who knows how to cultivate the soil of your life and plant those seeds of hope for a new life in you. That's what Jesus did for Mary. That's what Jesus desires to do for you. Speaking of gardening, Psalm chapter 126 says this, Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. And don't you know that Mary, every single day until the day she died, she was telling people, I have seen the Lord. He really is alive. He really is the Son of God. He really does forgive our sins and He really does promise us the hope of life everlasting. And may we also, like Mary, proclaim that truth this Easter morning.